The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Kerry McCauley. Kerry got his inspiration to start flying from his uncle Kerry, who was a Navy pilot and Kerry's namesake. At 17, he joined the Army National Guard and became a Huey helicopter crew chief. Kerry did 12 years in the Guard, becoming a winter survival instructor, air assault school graduate, and was awarded two Army Commendation Medals. In 1986, Kerry got his skydiving license and private pilot license, and within three years, was a freefall instructor and commercial pilot. In 1990, Kerry was hired by Orient Air and made his first solo transatlantic crossing, delivering a small twin-engine plane from Minnesota to Lisbon, Portugal. In 1998, Kerry and his wife Kathy started Skydive Twin Cities, which soon became the biggest skydiving school in Minneapolis. Since then, Kerry has made over 20,000 jumps and raised two children who now are also skydiving instructors. In the 30 years since that first trip, Kerry has made over 100 ocean crossings, flown over 50 different kinds of aircraft to over 60 countries, and landed in every continent but Antarctica. Kerry's ferry flying career took a new turn when the Discovery Channel hired him to be one of the main characters on their TV show, Dangerous Flights. The show was a hit and ran for two seasons and was slated for a third until an accident claimed the life of one of the cameramen and the show was soon cancelled. In July 2020, Kerry published a memoir about the early days of his career called Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the North Atlantic. The book was an instant bestseller, selling over 4,000 copies in six months and is currently the number one book on Amazon in the aviation category. Kerry is currently finishing up a novel on a Black Hawk crew chief in Afghanistan and working on his second book on ferry flying. A lifetime of adventures, and I am so lucky to have him joining me today. Welcome, Kerry. Thanks for having me. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? Well, I've always been uh, fascinated by aviation. My uncle Carrie, who I'm named after, is a naval naval carrier pilot and flew S two trackers uh, off aircraft carriers. And I always wanted to be like, like my uncle Carrie. And uh, so I joined the National Guard when I was 17, still in high school, and became a Huey crew chief. And that was my first job in aviation. Now, what exactly does a Huey crew chief do? Well, crew chiefs are, first and foremost, helicopter mechanics. We have to know everything there is about the Huey helicopter. And then we're part of the flight crew, um, door gunner. One is one of our jobs. Plus, we're the ones in charge of the aircraft. We look out the side of the helicopter and help with sling loads, uh, landings and takeoffs. And pretty much we're the ones that are in charge of the helicopters. The pilots, they just kind of drive the bus and we tell them where to go. That sounds sort of like you need to have a jack-of-all-trades background, both uh, in project management and also aircraft maintenance as well. Yeah, for sure. You need to be uh, multitasking. Now, what was your first ferry gig? Uh, I started ferry flying in 1990, working for a company called Orient Air out of St. Paul, Minnesota. And they hired me to ferry a Beach Duchess, which is a small, light twin um, trainer from St. Paul to Lisbon, Portugal. So that was my very first job with them. They didn't, um, they didn't start me off flying over the land at all. It was basically St. Paul to 
Bangor, Maine, from there to St. John's, Newfoundland. And the third leg was 1,500 miles of open ocean to Santa Maria of the Azores. And yeah, jump right in. Now, I have been in a Duchess, and that's not an aircraft I would willingly take out over the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean. So, what was that like for you? That first trip was crazy. It was, you know, first of all, it was a dream come true. I'd been working toward being a ferry pilot for three years uh, prior to that. And sitting on the runway, getting ready to take off, there's a million things that's running through your mind, you know, all the problems that could possibly happen. And basically the big question, am I really going to do this? I mean, because it's it's a pretty crazy uh, adventure. And I was uh, alone in the plane, too, by the way. Um, my very first trip, I was by myself. My boss was sort of with me. He was in another plane, though. It took off 50 minutes to, prior to me. And at that point, I could have made up some kind of excuse to not go, but there really wasn't any choice I was going. Now, what were some of the considerations of taking a light twin um, over the Atlantic? Well, first and foremost is fuel. Do you have enough gas to get across the Atlantic? Now, the Beach Duchess definitely does not have the range to make 1,500 miles, um, and that's with zero reserve. So it had ferry tanks installed inside the plane to give it the range that'll uh, get it over there because the trip i believe that first trip was about 11 hours 10 and a half something like that and i think we had probably 13 hours of fuel in the plane so i had a couple hour reserve uh, then we also put in an hf radio it's a high frequency radio kind of like a ham radio that allows you to talk um to shore when you're a thousand miles out to sea and after that you put in a bunch of snacks and off you go now, what was it like when you finally made it to your destination? That was pretty crazy. Um, you know, it's quite a relief, actually. The big relief part is when you're finally within gliding distance of shore. So, you know, it's not, all right, if I at least crash here, I'm not going to get wet. Um, but I, I couldn't believe I'd done it. Actually, in my logbook, I've got a little notation, made it with a bunch of exclamation points. And so that's one. And I knew that that was going to be the first of many. So I was pretty happy, though, to make that first one. And I understand that you would have flown, I guess, commercially homewards. Yeah. Um, actually, on that trip, we dropped my plane off in Portugal, and then I got my boss's plane, and we continued on to Zurich, and then we both flew home, flew home commercial. And having had that as your real um, baptism by fire, getting into the fairy world, uh, doing a light twin Atlantic crossing. What was it like afterwards knowing that you had those skills from the very beginning? You know, it was a big confidence builder, um, you know, cause when you undertake something like that and you're successful, you know, that kind of brings together all the training you'd done up until that point, all the cross countries and navigation, all the maintenance stuff, because you really use all those skills in that trip. I mean, on that very first trip, my boss lost his vacuum pump. So he had to fly a formation with me at night in the rain and clouds to, you know, to get to our destination. Then we actually put in another vacuum pump a couple days later. So we got to use maintenance, you know, fuel mate management, um, a lot of navigation skills in that first one, because this was back before GPS. So it's uh, figuring out with your winds aloft what you're, what your flight plan is going to be and then stick to it for 10 hours over the ocean. Now the show dangerous flights appeared on the discovery channel in 2012, following a group of ferry pilots flying light aircraft to their new owners all around the world. What was it like to be part of this show? Uh, being on dangerous flights was great. Uh, really had a good time with it. The people that we flew with were amazing. 
it was kind of nerve wracking because when I took that first flight, I hadn't made a ferry flight for a couple of years. And so it was like, boy, do I still remember how to do this? And having cameras all over you and all in the cockpit, realizing that any mistake you make is going to be broadcast in front of a couple million people is that's kind of intimidating, but uh, I really loved it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Was there a particular trip that was showcased on the show that was a highlight for you? You know, I think the trip from, uh, you know, Bonanza from Uruguay to North Carolina was my favorite trip because, you know, my daughter Claire was with me and that was amazing. You know, having, having to have that adventure with her was just the high pl- highlight of my entire flying career. I mean, because most of the time I take these ferry flights by myself and I just go home, come home and tell people stories and actually having my daughter with me for the whole, the whole adventure was pretty special. And as I saw from the show, Claire flies as well. Yep. Yep. She flies. Um, although mo- these days she's really into skydiving and indoor skydiving. So it's pretty tough to keep her in the plane. She likes to jump out. Going back to your comment of how there were cameras all over uh, the aircraft and watching you and the other pilots on the show. Did you feel that that gave sort of a heightened sense of uh, scrutiny for the safety? Oh, for sure. Um, normally when I'm, a, when I'm ferry flying, not on the show and I'm by myself I can pretty much do whatever I want and get away with whatever I want as long as I get the plane there in one one piece but having the cameras documenting every single step you know not only in the plane but on the ground and afterwards is you have to watch what you do and watch what you say but uh, we made it work I guess there would have been the added element as well of having viewers make different comments to you guys that way you could have done better and sometimes giving maybe unwanted feedback about the flights themselves. Yeah. The backseat pilots get to be a little annoying and they're, you know, they always say, don't, don't read the comments online because they don't have the whole story. Um, Because you gotta remember the show is meant to be entertaining. So the producers, they over-dramatize stuff. Nothing was made up, but, you know, they would do stuff like if they didn't hurry up, they would have to land, dun, 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 at night. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> okay, I'm not afraid of the dark. I fly at night all the time. But, uh, yeah, listening to the people comment was trying. Or other times where you see something along the lines of they have two pilots for extra safety. It's like, well, isn't that just generally an industry standard? Uh, actually, no, you almost never have two pilots when you're ferry flying because I remember the main goal of a ferry flight is to deliver the, deliver the plane as cost effectively as possible. So you don't normally want to pay for two pilots. You don't want to pay for their hotel, food, transportation, all that stuff. So usually you're by yourself, but on the show, they had to have two pilots there because you got to have somebody to argue with, you know? So it was done purely for the drama. Yeah, I mean, some guys fly with two pilots. I mean, that's how you train new ferry pilots. But um, almost all my trips when I wasn't on the show were solo trips. Now, going back to uh, your first ferry job with the Beechcraft Duchess, uh, you have now conducted over 100 oceanic crossings uh, as a ferry pilot. Uh, What are some of the considerations that go into oceanic crossings, but particularly in a single engine aircraft? Well, like I mentioned, fuel is the big consideration. Um, You look at your winds a lot forecast to make sure you've got favorable winds and you have to kind of build in a huge buffer because even though normally the winds a lot forecast is very accurate, there have been lots of times over the years that unexpected headwinds come up and they can really stop you in your tracks. 
Because yeah, I remember when you're flying over the ocean, once you pass the point of no return or the equal time point, you're kind of committed. Um, you know, once you get to the point where you can't turn around and make it back to land, whatever you find, whatever happens to you after that point is just too bad. You're just going to have to deal with it. So you have to deal with have a weather problem, icing, thunderstorm, something like that. You're going to have to find your way above, below, or around it if you have the fuel. Got a maintenance problem, something wrong with the plane. Got to nurse it along. Because um, if you're unsuccessful in any of those things, you're going to get wet. Now, do you have, I guess, discussions with the new owners of the aircraft about, well, we could go direct. That might not be the best idea. So rather, we would maybe go up towards Quebec, uh, Greenland, Iceland, and into Europe that way. Yeah. Um, most of the time, the owners are usually pretty good about letting me pick the route I find is I find best. You know, I always tell them, look, I'm going to do my best job to make this as cheap as possible. You know, I, that's what I pride myself in. You know, you, you know, my experience will let me go direct if I can make it. And if I can't make it, if we got to go around weather, I'll go around. Sometimes it makes, makes sense to sit on the ground in one location and let a storm pass. And sometimes it makes sense to completely call an audible and go thousands of miles out of your way. It just depends. Now, with oceanic crossings, has that been Atlantic and Pacific? I've crossed uh, only the Pacific and the up over from Russia to Alaska. I, hey, I the one leg that I haven't got in my belt under my belt yet is the Hawaii to uh, California leg. I, I really want to make that that trip. I had an opportunity last month, but unfortunately, I was too busy. But I'll get that one of these days. Hawaii to California does sound pretty luxe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's the longest leg in the world that doesn't have a, a fuel stop in the middle of it. Um, although I've, I've flown longer distances, but like from St. John's direct to Paris is 2,500 miles, but you're kind of flying over the Southern tip of Ireland. So you could land earlier, but yeah, Hawaii to California, that's a long one. With aviation technology constantly developing, does the advancement of technology in the flight deck take away from any sense of satisfaction that comes from maybe doing it more traditionally Lindbergh style? You know, it kind of does. Um, I've got eight crossings without GPS, the old fashioned way with nothing but a compass. And I tell you, when you, when you cross the Atlantic with nothing but a compass, there's a special sense of accomplishment. You know, not very, I mean, nobody does it anymore. Um, my last one was 30 years ago. I mean, everybody now is GPS. And when GPS first came out, it was pretty cool. You know, it's like magic. Wow, I actually know where I am over the ocean. Um, now, with GPS and foreflight and in-flight weather and everything, they're great tools. I love them. But you don't have quite that sense of, primitive adventure as as we used to not saying i'm going to go back <laughs> not use my gps anytime soon but uh, i kind of miss the old days and the idea of having those early aviators and record setters who did all those flights without gps is there a certain respect that you have for them more so oh yeah gosh i mean to think to think of what those guys did you know, the primitive technology they, they took off in, I mean, Lindbergh had a, just a wicker chair and he was in that, in that plane for a really long time. His, I mean, my butt gets sore just in a, a eight, 10 hour flight in a brand new beach craft right out of the factory with the nicest custom leather seats. I can't imagine what, uh, what he was feeling like. And 
you know, their engine instruments were, and everything was just so primitive. And their, even their weather forecasting, I mean, they had no idea what was going on in the middle of the Atlantic. It's just like, let's just go for it. So utmost respect. How has being a ferry pilot changed the way you fly overall? Well, it mainly, I think um, most of the time I wish I had ferry tanks when I'm flying over the, over the U.S. because I hate only having three or four hours worth of, of uh, range in my, in my tanks. Um, I, I try not to let it affect me as far as making me more complacent because, you know, fly, like flying over the U.S., there's an airport every 20, 30 miles, you know, and there's, you've got ATC and all these tools, all these resources at your command, you know, anything goes wrong, you can land, you can do whatever. So it's tempting to just be a little more carefree, but that's how you're going to get bit. Um, I fly a lot and complacency is the thing that I battle the most. And then even looking at the idea of having maybe an in-flight emergency when you're in an area that is extensive ATC coverage and lots of alternate options versus being over the Atlantic, I guess, again, wanting to have uh, re- a reduced sense of complacency that you have all these options and resources available to you in that context. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, what I, what I try not to do is if I, if I run into a problem in the plane flying over the U.S., to not just keep going like, well, that's a little thing I can deal with it. You know, when I'm over the ocean, you don't have a choice. You, you have to deal with it. You have to, you know, keep going. You know, when you're over, when you're over Kansas, maybe you could stop and open the hood and see what's going on. And there's also more options for bathroom breaks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a little easier than a, than a 14 hour leg over the Sahara. In a recent video interview you did with the AOPA as part of their Real Pilot Stories series, you shared a story about an issue with a reserve ferry fuel tank while flying over the North Atlantic. How important do you think it is to share stories of near accidents? You know, for, for, my, for myself and my training, I research and read about every single pilot incident I can get my hands on because you can learn so much from the incidents of others, how they handle them, what they did right, what they did wrong and how you can use that in your future. Because you, you never know when this one little nugget of information that you read about in a magazine or see in a video someplace is going to come into play in your future. Remember, I mean, learn from the mistakes of others. You're, you'll never live long enough to make them all yourself. That's something that we hear all the time in aviation, and it really is true. Has there been another pilot story you heard that, was, uh, that really resonated with you that you were able to draw on later? Oh, boy. Um... Yeah, I, I heard of a guy that was, you know, flying over the ocean that ran into unexpected headwinds and he was running really low on fuel and he did some engine management things, you know, reduces RPMs, reduces the, you know, climb to a better, higher performance altitude. And at one point I was in a semi-similar situation. My fuel was getting a little low and I did that early enough to make a difference. You know, I didn't, I didn't end up in an emergency because... I recognized it and I thought about what he'd done. It's like, you know, maybe I should save the gas now and because uh, I might need it later. And it worked out. I know even just in my own experience watching the Air Safety Institute's videos and also listening to their podcasts, it does stick with you in a way that I think is maybe more um, helpful and more tangible than a, re- a report. Hearing an actual person recount their story and their experiences, I think, is um, becoming a very effective way, at least with the internet, to share those stories uh, at a wider berth than we would have had previously. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just like 
even even now, I'll go through magazines or whatever, and if I see somebody had a little trouble, especially the accidents, what happened, what was this, what was the chain of events, and how could you have broken that? Now, what advice would you have for someone wanting to be a ferry pilot? Um, you know, the biggest thing in be- becoming a ferry pilot now is get experiences made in as many different aircraft as you can, because you never know what you're going to be called upon to fly. You know, get tailwheel endorsement, get a lot of tail dragger time, turbine time, multi-engine time, a lot of different planes. Uh, prospective customers are going to want to see you've got time in that kind of airplane. Now, that's hard to do. I mean, airplanes are expensive. You can't just go up to the go to the ramp and go take each different ones for a ride. But if somebody offers to take you for a ride in a plane you haven't flown in before, you should take it. And would the same idea of having a variation of experience also apply to maybe different uh, climates? So I know we could have like the Rocky Mountains versus um, the prairies. Oh, for sure. You know, cold weather, you want to you want to get some cold weather experience. Mountain flying experiences is great. You know, over the ocean experience, that's really just long distance. I mean, the airplane doesn't know that you're flying over water. Just, it's only you that's terrified of the, the wet stuff down there. But yeah, the more the more different environments you can get yourself exposed to and the more experience you can gain from that, uh, the better off you're going to be. Now, what advice would you have for someone maybe considering aviation as a career? You know, go for it. It's it's the best it's the best career, at least as far as I'm concerned, that there is. I mean, you get to look out the window, watch the scenery change all day. It's not the same office cubicle. Um, But just keep if, if you're having a hard time with it, just keep plugging away at it keep building your hours you know the hiring um goes in a cycle right now things are down a little bit just a little bit ago there was a big pilot shortage i think there's going to be a pilot shortage again in the future when things pick up again don't get discouraged and uh keep building your hours now who is someone in aviation you admire and why i think my biggest hero in aviation is chuck yeager um i read his book right off the bat he just had such a such a great aviation career and he did all sorts of crazy things and i actually got to fly with chuck yeager well okay i met him in an elevator once and we took off so it was kind of flying but <laughs> okay i guess i can't claim i flew with chuck yeager but uh, i did get to meet him um uh, no he's definitely my my hero because he's he was really good but he was also a little little bit of a rule breaker a little devil may care so that's uh, it's kind of right, right in my alley. Frankly, if I was in an elevator with Chuck Yeager, I would tell everyone that we had flown together. <laughs> and I think the that sort of spirit of Chuck Yeager is something that definitely you see a lot of in aviation. I know. I think my favorite quote that is attributed to him is the first time I saw a jet, I shot it down. That there's a certain just ultra coolness to Chuck Yeager. Yeah, he's. Uh... He was one of a kind. I don't think you're, you're ever going to see anybody like him again. As someone who has flown countless types of aircraft to countless countries, what is left on your bucket list aside from the Hawaii to California leg? Well, the place, the only continent I haven't been to is Antarctica. So what I would really love to do is fly down to Antarctica. And I kind of have a, a plan in mind. My personal airplane is a Beach, Dutch, or Beach Queen Air, which is a piston version of a King Air. And what I want to do is fly out from the United States down through the Caribbean, down the east coast of South America, touch down in Antarctica, and then fly up the west coast of South America through Central America and back up. And that, uh, that's the trip that I'm going to make happen.
that truly does sound like a trip of a lifetime among other trips of a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. It would be cool. So in addition to being a pilot, you also own and operate a skydive school with your wife. Where did your interest in skydiving come from? Well, in the Army, I went to air assault school, which is where they teach you how to do all kinds of air, helicopter air assault operations, including rappelling out of helicopters, which was way scarier than jumping out of them. Uh, but when I got back from air assault school, I figured that was, that was amazing, an amazing part of aviation, and I want to do more stuff like that. And a friend of mine knew an instructor at a local school. We went there, took the first jump course, and make that first jump, and I was, I was hooked. I figured, yeah, I'm going to do that a few thousand more times. And would you suggest that to anyone that is in aviation, that they go and have that experience as well? Oh, definitely. Um, the, the more exposed you can get to aviation, the better. I mean, there's, there's no bad training in aviation. One of the things I always tell people, though, if you wear a parachute, you should know how to use it. So like aerobatic pilots, they really should make a couple of skydives because you shouldn't be more scared of jumping out of an airplane than landing a plane with just one wing. If you, you know, you lose a, you lose a wing in an aerobatic plane, you need to get out quick and you should know what you're doing. And I guess as well, I, I think what I'm asking is how does having a skydiving background impact the way you fly and approach flying, knowing that you have all the experience of egressing aircraft? Oh, boy. Not really sure it affects the way I fly. If, if I don't have a parachute, it's not really an option. But it, it does enhance my weather knowledge because when you're skydiving, you're, the weather is so much more critical because, you know, the wind picks up to 25, 30 miles an hour when you're skydiving. That could be bad. In a plane, it's not a big deal. So when I'm skydiving and running the skydiving school, I stare at the weather all day, every day. And that has really helped me in my aviation when I'm flying airplanes. I just, the more knowledgeable you are about the weather, the better pilot you're going to be. As well, running a skydiving school out of the American Midwest, that would also be a huge, a weather would be a huge factor uh, in that. Oh, big time. Um, Thunderstorms pop up out of nowhere around here. And I've seen that lots of times. I, I've been in the air when it's been calm and all of a sudden a 35 mile an hour gust front comes flying through and you see people getting tossed all over the place. Like, okay, so that gust front can go 40 miles from that, that thunderstorm. Good to know. Now, what are some things you enjoy outside of aviation? Boy, pretty much anything risky. Uh, I like scuba diving. I like backcountry skiing, uh, spelunking, like going down into caves, um, I, lo- I love to get the adrenaline going. If it's, if it's easy to do, I'm not usually that interested. I like, I like pushing the envelope. And you also are a motorcycle enthusiast. Yep, yep. I re- like riding uh, highways with my Army buddies. Uh, we've got a motorcycle club, a bunch of old Army aviation Huey pilots and Blackhawk pilots and crew chiefs that we get together a couple times a year and terrorize the countryside. Now, your new book, Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the Atlantic, is available now. And you go into detail of all different stories from your aviation career so far. What is your favorite aviation memory that did not make it into the book? You know, I guess that had to be my round the world flight in uh, a group of six Epic home built airplanes. Epic is a single engine turbine plane about the size of a Platus BC-12. I got hired to fly as a a pro pilot to help a bunch of owners fly the planes around the world in a month and a half long journey. And let me tell you, that was the most amazing trip anybody could ever be on. The organizers had, at each stop, the coolest thing they could find. They, they, they booked it for us. They put us up in the best hotels, had the best food. 
we started in Oshkosh, then we went to Toronto, Goose Bay, Labrador, Nursasarak, Greenland, Reykjavik, Iceland, Wick, uh, Scotland, London, Italy, Czech Republic, Russia, 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 Russia's big, <laughs> Alaska, Wyoming, ended up back at Oshkosh during air venture and got the flying information and uh, to the roaring applause of the crowd. And that was, uh, you just can't get a better trip than that. And how long would that trip have taken you? That was about a month and a half. Cause we didn't, we didn't rush. We were having a good time. You know, we sometimes stay three or four days at a particularly nice location and enjoy the scenery. And uh, why it was, that was, that was so great. I, I need to do that again. That was pretty cool. That would be really hard to top. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on my website, carriemccauley.com. If you wanted to get a personal signed copy of my book, you email me there at carrie at carriemccauley.com or Carrie McCauley author on Facebook or fairypilot.book on Instagram. And I will make sure that we have all of those links available in the episode description for our listeners. Carrie McCauley, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, it was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.